Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yer Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined this week by Talia Laven, the author of Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. Thanks very much for joining us, Talia. Hello. Hello, everybody down under. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. I just thought at the top of the show, maybe we should uh, give a warning that we're recording this on the Sunday and it's going to be broadcast on the Thursday. And it seems like a lot can change in this space in uh, that time. I don't know if you've noticed, Talia. It's a fast-moving world. Yeah, no. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the term accelerationism. You know, the idea of, like, trying to hasten societal collapse that's particularly popular in the American far right. And, yeah, when you've got a population of violent accelerationists, an awful lot can happen in four days. So here's hoping nothing of interest happens to this population. Podcast. Uh, nothing of interest to this podcast um, happens at all. So we've got you on to talk about the book, which comes out in the States this week, but you can uh, pre-order in Australia to get it next month. Could you tell us what's the book about and why did you decide to write it? So the book is about online white supremacy, basically how white supremacy spreads and manifests online. As to why I decided to write it, I'm a pretty regular target of the far right here in the US, a perennial like favorite person to... I'm Jewish and loud and anti-fascist and feminist and all kinds of things. And it was sort of a matter of like, well, the abyss is like looking directly at me and I might as well look back as hard as I can. It was more a matter of being stubborn and, and doubling down and also wanting to know just like, what are the roots of all this and, and, and where, where is it really coming from? When you were looking into the roots of it, uh, were you surprised by what you found and what did you find? I think that. I had sort of done enough writing and research on the far right before I started that there was no one sort of individual thing that was like the most surprising. But one of the things that I think might, one of the stereotypes that I'm sort of persistently trying to combat when I'm trying to explain to people what the far right actually looks like is, you know, in the US, at least there's this idea of like, oh, it's, you know, toothless Cletus in his mother's basement, someone uneducated, it's someone poor, 
it's someone sort of uniquely beset by troubles. In my experience, that hasn't really been the case with the people that I've looked at and talked to and tried to understand. It seems more to me like, you know, just because like people who are really (laughs) impoverished and struggling don't necessarily have time to like uh, time or inclination to get really into like obscure fascist texts from like the 1930s or whatever and uh, accumulate, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of guns and stuff. So One of the stereotypes I try to sort of bust in the book is that people who join extremist movements are sort of uniquely troubled or uniquely stupid or uniquely horrific or like they are horrific, but but uniquely sort of pushed towards these dangerous and malicious ideas by the circumstances of their lives. Because in my understanding, that's just not not the case. I'm sort of reminded of just this week, we've had the the case of a number of people arrested for, uh, I think, conspiring to kidnap a governor. And one of the things that went around was a, a photo of one of their houses, which seemed to have maybe a slightly messy yard. And this was put up as proof that, you know, th- th- these impoverished existences lead to these extremist outcomes. Yeah, no, I mean, that was just, I mean, I'm like, I don't have a house. It'd be awesome to have a house. I don't have a yard. Like what? <laughs> like I, you know, I, I do not own any property at all. So I don't know. And yet I am not engaged in a, a violent plot to kidnap a governor. So go me, I guess. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I think there's sort of a, I think that there are reasons people are put, like, are drawn to these movements. You know, what I try to emphasize is that these are human people who've made a series of human choices to engage in some pretty horrific things. But my feeling is that no socioeconomic class or geographic region or (laughs) any specific you can name has a monopoly on cruelty or rage or loss or feeling of displacement and, and wanting to belong to something bigger than any of the various seductions that the white power movement offers. I guess that the perpetuation of that stereotype could be a failing of media coverage of these sorts of ideas and movements. What else do you think is missing from the reportage that's been generated by this movement so far? Because as you've pointed out, that people drawn to it come from a range of, I guess, class backgrounds. But a few years ago, we also witnessed the emergence of figures like Richard Spencer, who were styling themselves and were able to present themselves to some degree successfully as belonging to the category of dapper fascist. So what what do you have to say about the media representations of these ideas and movements? Well, I think it's all connected, right? I mean, if you start from the premise that every person who engages in violent white supremacist ideology is sort of inherently going to be this deeply impoverished schmo, like pushed into white nationalism by the inherent hideousness of his position in the world, then basically what you have is like then a ready-made sort of template where you, like anyone who doesn't fit that mold becomes the subject of this fascination and surprise. Like there was also a pretty egregious profile in the New York Times of like, you know, a pretty standard issue chud named Tony Hobatter, who, you know, was like a propagandist for neo-Nazis basically. And I mean, it was literally, I think the profile is literally called the Nazi next door. And it's like, 
there's this perennial shock in American media that like if a Nazi is able to like make pasta without like jizzing a swastika onto the wall during the course of making the pasta, then he's somehow like uniquely, oh my God, this is so crazy. Like, which is just really doesn't serve anyone particularly well, except the media class that can sort of gawk with fascination at the idea that there are white supremacists who are driven by malevolence, rage, and like the very sophisticated and emotionally compelling propaganda of a decades old movement into something, you know, this bad. So yeah, I think it all really stems from this classist bubble that a lot of American media suffers from where it's like any, you know, I mean, and that that picture of like a pretty normal house and a yard with like multiple trucks in it was like a pretty, pretty classic example there. Oh my God. Can you believe like, like look how poor they are. There's a truck in the yard. So when you have that kind of classist blindness, that really makes you vulnerable to anyone who presents themselves as sort of a dapper spokesperson for white nationalist movement. And so much of the coverage has been so softball that it almost feels like an ad for joining the joining the movement like it's kind of obscene in my opinion which isn't to say there aren't some amazing reporters on this beat like there absolutely are and people i really admire but like i think when you have people who might not know as much or or might be like i mean there are sophisticated white supremacist propagandists and journalists are people too and like if you don't do your due diligence like you can and you don't you know sort of strongly look at your own biases you can fall into this trap of like oh my god he didn't you know shit his pants and sig heil public this is the most eloquent man i've ever seen another moment talia uh, that generated a bit of interest not only in the united states but elsewhere was when one of these uh, dapper fascists richard spencer got clocked while being interviewed by uh, abc in washington and that generated quite a debate, I understand, about the, uh, you know, tactics and strategies that can be employed to counteract figures like him and, and the movements that he represents. So part of your book is dedicated to exploring anti-fascism in the United States and the, the opposition. In your research on that and how the media portrays this, uh, you know, anti-fascist menace, what did you discover and what have you concluded about anti-fascism in the United States. It's great. It's the tits. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I mean, I think there's so much hand-wringing. There's so much tut-tutting over clocking a Nazi in the face. And I'm like, it's not like a more peaceful activity to go around, like, arguing for ethnic cleansing than it is to, like, prevent the organization of militant far-right organizing. Like, there's this idea that like if Nazis are just talking, which they rarely do, like, you know, neo-Nazi groups and far-right groups in the U.S. routinely engage in physical violence with pretty much impunity due to the fact that the police forces here are like pretty openly allied with them. But, you know, even beyond that, I think this this sort of, as I say in the book, I think that this idea of like, we must be better than them or or whatever like this idea that interrupting the organizing of violent far-right group is you know by any means necessary up to and including violence is sort of inherently in and of itself wrong i i think that's a very self-indulgent 
idea. I think it comes from kind of a centrist, liberal, mm, pious fantasy of self-congratulation. And what it says to me is that like my own idea of myself as virtuous and anyone I could conceive of as an ally must be as virtuous as me. And and this idea of self-surfing virtue matters more to me than the lives of the people materially impacted by far-right organizing. Muslim, gay, trans, Jewish lives are less important to me than my idea of myself as a paragon of virtue. And I don't find that to be a particularly inspiring or even morally defensible position. This sort of opposition, I mean, anti-fascist or antifa, as um, they're sometimes called, has emerged as something of a political boogeyman in the United States. And and it's kind of remarkable that Trump himself has put it on the record that he thinks that these domestic terrorists should be criminalised and their networks dispersed and so on. So, And one of the issues, I guess, that anti-fascists have had in the US is there's a general inability or unwillingness to... I guess, engage in the kind of you know, PR campaigns that you know, maybe the dapper fascists are more adept at. H- how do you think anti-fascists, if they can, can better present themselves to the public or explain their uh, you know, politics to a, a broader movement? It's hard. You know, it's, it's a really hard quandary. And I try to stay sort of descriptive rather than prescriptive in the book when I'm talking about Antifa or an, um, anti-fascism as it currently manifests in the United States. But I mean, my take is like, there are reasons to stay anonymous. I mean, I have paid a pretty heavy price for like being as outspoken as I've been about Nazis. In my day-to-day life, I take measures to conceal my location. I take measures to try desperately to ensure my family's safety. And I feel a sense of real jeopardy when it comes to the publication of this book and and when it comes to the safety of my family and my, my loved ones. And so, you know, and the harassment that I've gotten and up to and including physical mail sent to my parent from a fascist group. You know, that's a lot for pe- to ask people to take on. So that's one aspect of it. You know, these groups are pretty ruthless and they are definitely violent. I mean, we had an incident here where Daniel Harper, a, an, like he, he has a wonderful podcast, I Don't Speak German. That's like about basically an anti-fascist podcast. And he was stalked by Nazis who drove past his house. I mean, like, it's a lot to take on to be a public anti-fascist under your own name. And... Also, there are degrees in which the nature of it is sort of a decentralized movement, a largely anonymous movement. When you see the mechanisms of state repression ginning up as they have, and you see this idea of like that all anti-fascists are terrorists or domestic terrorists or whatever, you know, I think there are abundant reasons for people to want to stay under the radar while still uh, letting people know that their neighbor or the guy who does the finishing on their car or like the, you know, their friendly local Republican politician has white nationalist ties. It's hard at this point to like counter what amounts to years of propaganda that like turn people whose sole and only goal is to like disrupt hate groups from organizing in their backyard into this bete noir that's like all powerful it's like very tied to anti-semitism this idea that like george soros and the rothschilds have paid off antifa 
it's very like linked to American paranoid gun fantasies. Like you've seen people mobilize in small towns across the country. This idea that Antifa is going to invade their town. I mean, it's like, so it's sort of, it's a difficult battle at this point. And I think maybe the PR battle is less important than just keep keeping on fighting the fight. I, I think the most ridiculous example of one of those Antifa panics was like, I think the police, I can't remember which city it was in, but I remember this incident vividly, like reading about it. They like arrested this bus full of people and it turned out they were traveling carnival performers, but they were like, oh, they had like weapons, they had like sticks and like whatever. And it turned out to be like juggling implements and like batons. (laughs) Because there was this like idea that Antifa were like being bussed in around the country to like loot and burn down like Schittsville, Idaho or whatever. And like, that's just not, I mean, the anti-fascists I know can like barely agree on anything for three seconds, let alone charter a boss. They can agree on like, hey, this Nazi group is coming into town and like, let's get together and make sure they don't beat up any queers and like figure out if we can identify who they are and where they're coming from. Maybe let their bosses know what they've been up to. No, beyond that, there's no coordinated anti-fascist rioting activity financed by the Jews. That's just not that's just not happening. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're talking to Talia Laven about her book, Culture Warlords. It's kind of ironic given that uh, in the book you describe how cities like Portland have emerged as battlegrounds precisely because they're, I guess, more liberal-leaning cities. So what the right is trying to do is go to places where they're not wanted, kick up a fuss and uh, generate in collaboration with, I guess, local police forces and generate dramatic images, which can then be sold to the public as evidence of how violent these and uh, freedom-hating these anti-fascists are. Yeah, it's like, why won't you let us simply walk around beating up anyone who looks, like, different to us? (laughs) How dare you, you monsters? No, yeah, and I talk about that in the book, and I talk about that, especially in relation to earlier generations of far-right organizing. Like, this is not a new tactic. You can go back as far as like in 1939, the German American Bund, the like Hitler loving, like Hitler society in the US put on a big rally in guess where? New York City, where there were a lot of Jews. And there were street brawls outside the city with the, you know, outside the the arena, you know, with the goal of like, we're going into enemy territory to make them look violent and bad. And then like the direct descendant of that was George Lincoln Rockwell, who the founder of the American Nazi Party, who in the summer that like uh, the Congress of Racial Equality was going around making these integrated bus rides across the South. He like set up a hate bus <laughs> to go into like Boston and New York and basically cities where he knew that there were liberal populations who would object to a nazi rally and thus generate sympathy from the press so it's a it's a in the dna of the far right and it continues to this day where like particularly portland is a striking example because joey gibson the biggest organizer of these rallies who's been doing this for literally years at this point for like a plurality of the trump era he lives in washington state like he he crosses state lines and buses in his compatriot in order to cause a ruckus so it's like and yet the 
you're right. It is ironic that the paranoid narrative on the right is like Antifa is coming to your town when the reality is Antifa is defending their own territory against literally invaders who express a profound interest in ethnic cleansing. And like, I know whose side I would rather be on personally. You also, in addition to looking at the, I guess, the, the more dramatic representations of this movement in the United States through the, the street clashes in places like Portland, you took a deep, deep, very deep dive into the online world, the dark web, so to speak, of the far right. Yeah, can I just say my publisher kind of pushed that, that subhead, <laughs> like, I'm, like I, the dark web is a specific thing, like, you buy like experimental yeah. drugs on it, but it is a dark web. I don't know. It's it's just a really gross like inter it's, internet it's, of vitriol. Yeah, sticky and unpleasant. But what uh, advice would you give to someone who was uh, taking a look themselves? Because as you note, it's a very unpleasant place, and it's difficult to extract yourself from it without kind of paying a price. Yeah, Emily Gorsensky is. I am lucky to consider a friend. She's like a really amazing anti-fascist who became an anti-fascist because she was a Charlottesville resident during Unite the Right. But she had a recent interview in The Guardian and, you know, what she said about like studying this stuff was like, you know, it's sort of inherently dehumanizing to look at, you know, what Nazis are saying every day. And like, it was a really corrosive experience for me to like spend the better part of two years every day checking these chats with titles like Holocaust 2 and Expose the Nose and the Zyklon Party and like, you know, just really awful stuff, checking hate sites all the time. Like, you know, I would wake up and like go read Nazi shit. And like, I'm still doing that to a greater or lesser extent undercover, whatever you know, using that, doing a little gonzo journalism here and there. My, I mean, I would say my advice to people is like, find your moral center. For me, my sense of moral clarity about this stuff really comes directly from my family history. Like my grandparents on my maternal side were literally Holocaust survivors. I lost an aunt in the Holocaust. Like it's very, feels very close to my family, to who I am as a person. And that helped me retain a moral center. You know, so find what it is that drives you to this so that it never becomes about fascination, always is about struggle. And just like recognize your limitations. Like I had a period recently when I just had to take a step back for about six weeks. I like, I'm going to pause all my infiltration stuff. I am going to take a break because I could feel myself teetering on the edge of something that felt abyssal and tarry and ugly inside. Recognize your own limitations, find your moral clarity, like even to the point of writing down the moral principles that, that are leading you to explore this stuff, return to them, like center yourself because many have been led astray <laughs> and many lose. I think you, you don't ever want to see them as shiny objects of fascination, even though it's interesting what drives people to hate and it's interesting how hate manifests, but you can never let the interest supersede the desire to defeat and deracinate it. So one of, one of the things that you do in the book is that uh, you, you join these, uh, as you say, these hate networks online. And I noticed that to do so, you sort of constructed these elaborate backstories. Why did you do that and what went into it? Well, I did try to go through the front door, and num like first, you know, 
my goal, I wasn't necessarily setting out to do Gonzo stuff from the first. But to a degree, I was already a known quantity before I started writing the book, which is sort of why I started writing the book. I was the top Google. I am still the top Google result for greasy fat kike, thanks to wonderful website, The Daily Stormer. So thank you for helping me fulfill that childhood dream, Andrew England. And like, I, you know, I was known to the far right to a greater or lesser extent. And my views were available a Google search away. I've, I've never been sort of the upper crust, very like restrained, fair-minded type of journalist when it comes to covering neo-Nazis. So that made it quite difficult to obtain interviews on the record, to be like able to, for example, like very early on, I tried to get into this ceremony for this pagan weightlifting based cult called Operation Werewolf. And I asked if I could observe their summer solstice cemetery, uh, 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 ceremony outside Albany. And like, they sort of strung me along for a while. And then we're like, oh, no, the elders have forbidden it. And then like, quite recently, I came across the guy I had been corresponding with saying on Instagram, like, oh, this bitch tried to talk to me, but like, she should have known we'd never let Jews in to our ceremony. So, you know, it was hard. It's It was hard to get in the front door. And so I realized I had to get creative if I wanted to do a deeper look. So I started just joining chats and joining groups. And for the most part, I was just, you know, a, a lot of times I was just eavesdropping with like a generic profile picture or name. But sometimes in order to gain the confidence of the people I was talking to or gain more insight, I did construct these quite elaborate personas and sometimes like a lot of them didn't make it into the book because for, for various reasons including space and so there were times when I was playing five or six different people at once including myself was it hard to keep track of all of that it was a little bit chaotic and certainly like made my sense of self feel a little more malleable overall I mean Playing a Nazi isn't that hard. You just pepper in the occasional racial slur. I tend to, to stick more to anti-Semitism because, like, I'm a Jew, and so it felt like that was somehow more okay. <laughs> I don't know. It was, like, all very morally murky, but, like, if I had to do a slur, it would be, like, an anti-Jewish slur because, like, at least I'm not bragging on, like, any other ethnic group. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was it was it was very chaotic in my brain for like a lot of the time I was writing this book. In writing the book, did that help purge some of the demons you acquired? Bold to assume I have purged any of my demons there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think certainly, like I mean, I'm it's, it's like so close to being out in the world, and uh, I'm terrified about the reactions. <laughs> I hope that people find it useful, but I think certainly writing it as sort of a very uncompromising salvo did feel like a means of fighting back. You know, I'm not a good street operative. I'm agoraphobic and very anxious and also I'm like not even five foot three. So I'm not necessarily your best bet for throwing punches, but this stuff I can do, explaining, infiltrating, talking, like, and I think that's a method of anti-fascism too. Many of the, uh, subjects of your research were quite young and overwhelmingly male. Do you think once these young people, these young men or teenage boys find themselves 
drawn into these uh, webs, so to speak. H- how do you think it's uh, possible for them to extricate themselves? And what, if anything, do you think others, especially, I guess, anti-fascists, what, what can they do to facilitate that process? De-radicalization is not my field of expertise, but there have been numerous cases of people who, after being doxxed, after facing some measure of accountability for what they've done and what they've said, have kind of quit the whole thing, (laughs) have just been like, oh, fuck this. You know, I think that holding people up to the light and not letting them get away with like the harassment and cruelty they engage with in the shadows is a method of perhaps extricating people because once your own name is linked to the, the things you've said and done, um, I think it drives people to question further. Is this really who I want to be? You know, and there have been multiple cases like that. Um, in some other cases, there's just been sort of a spontaneous irascination or realization. I think the best thing we can do and like what I encourage readers of the book to do, it's really hard when you have, a United States government that's so openly aligned with the far right, that so openly flirts with, encourages it, uh, even to the point of pretty openly when it comes to the president, like encouraging vigilante violence. I think over the past half decade, there's been a serious erosion of the social cost of public racism. And so we can do as a collective, as a public, people committed to anti-fascism is to seek to reimpose that social cost, to make it worthy of pariahood, to be getting online and posting swastikas and um, slurs and, and harassing people because of, they have a different skin color or religion than you. Like, I think the goal is to make that behavior unacceptable again. And uh, that requires a great deal of resolution and strength and it requires a certain moral uncompromisingness. Say this is wrong, and 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 what you've done is wrong, and like you should be ashamed. So you know, I think reimposing that social cost, making sure that you can't get away with the shit you think you can get away with anonymously online, that's stuff that anti-fascists do, and um, and it's one of the things I admire the most about the anti-fascists I've met. Just finally, and this might be a little bit unfair given that at the top of the show I was sort of worried about how much things might change in four days. How do you think the outcome of the election is going to affect the white power movement? I, uh, oh God, <laughs> I'm not in the business of prognosticating the future, but I find it worryingly plausible that November will be a very bloody month in the United States. And there are any number of worst case scenarios dancing around my head at any given moment. And as you guys unfortunately saw with Brenton Tarrant, who is Australian, seeking to impact U.S. politics with his monstrous act in Christchurch, unfortunately, what we do in the center of empire has a ripple effect on the rest of the world. And so I I think it's the autumn of the accelerationists. <laughs> it's, it's really the sort of element that, that sought, as I talk about in the book, the element that sought to sort of attain the mantle of of respectability for white nationalism has fallen away a bit. And what you're left with is sort of a hard core of quite violent people and these chats so consistently engage in stochastic terrorism that I have real reason to worry that regardless of election outcome, but especially if it's messy, if it's a messy loss that leads to litigation or, you know, gives Trump a chance to claim 
that things were rigged or stolen or whatever, that you could see people engaging in, in violence with the idea of hastening collapse. And that's something that really like keeps me up at night. So it's not really a cheerful note to end the podcast on, but we just got to stay together. That's all right. None of these podcasts are on a cheerful note. <laughs> <laughs> well, Talia, we'll have to leave it there. Culture Warlords is out this week and you can get it in uh, wherever you get your books. Where can people find you online to find out more? So I'm on Twitter. Your best bet is to just uh, search my name, Talia, T-A-L-I-A, Lavin, L-A-V-I-N. I'm like on Twitter too much. My actual handle is like at chick in Kiev with a bunch of underscores and it's a stupid pun on like chicken Kiev. I made it while I was living in Kiev. That that was why. That's why I have that stupid handle. But yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot and um, you can find I just wrote a big feature on QAnon for the New Republic. I'm working on a big project about militias. So hopefully you'll see that coming down the pipe. And the book is available now, now, now. God, I, book promo is really hard. <laughs> I'm like not a natural saleswoman, but I'm trying. And I, I did put two years of my life into like investigating the most scabrous nests of human evil I could. So you know, even if it's just out of sympathy, do click pre-order. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week.
The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter.